The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight is our last night in studying uh, systematic theology for a while. Uh, we're reaching the end of a major subsection in Wayne Grudem's book and uh, talking to the ministerial staff and just a sense uh, from the Lord. We're going to begin, um, God willing, next week a study in personal evangelism. Um, so uh, tell your friends and come if you want to learn how to witness, if you want to talk more about the gospel, about different ways that we can be involved in evangelism. That's what we're going to be doing starting next week. Um, so I'm excited about that, but I'm excited about finishing up tonight as well as we study uh, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's been an incredible study, uh, not just uh, on the Spirit, but uh, we've looked at the person and work of uh, Christ and also who the Holy Spirit is. Um, and so tonight I would like to finish that study. I want to give time for questions and for application at the end uh, so that we can just get a thorough understanding of what the Lord has led us to study here. Uh, the, just by way of review in your uh, sheet there, the work of the Holy Spirit, week six, exact same handout as last week. Uh, we've talked about the work of the Holy Spirit. We've seen that the Spirit is a person. He's the third person of the uh, Trinity. We've talked about the deity of the Spirit and the evidence biblically for that. We've talked about the empowering work of the Spirit, the fact that the Spirit gives and sustains life. Uh, you have the ministry of the Spirit going on in, in you right now. Uh, he also gives power for service. We're going to talk more about that tonight. Uh, we've talked about the purification of the Spirit, how the Spirit makes us holy. He does an ongoing purifying work, the sanctification of the Spirit, how we are set apart unto God by the Holy Spirit, sealed with the Spirit from the moment of conversion. At that very moment, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Then the Spirit begins a work of holiness in us, gradually, little by little, working holiness inside us by sanctification. And we've talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit reveals. He reveals truth to us. Uh, he reveals it by giving to us the Scriptures. The Scripture is uh, the foundation of our understanding of God. It says uh, in Ephesians that the church of Jesus Christ is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Uh, now, when I read that, I take that to mean that the, the church is built in some sense on Scripture. When I look at apostles and prophets, I think uh, the foundation of the, of the church is the word of God. And it was the Holy Spirit that revealed those truths to the prophets and to the apostles. We also saw how the Holy Spirit gives evidence of God's presence. He guides and directs God's people, provides a God-like atmosphere when he manifests his presence, gives us assurance and teaches and illuminates. All of that we have already covered. Last week, we talked about the unifying work of the Spirit, how the Spirit makes us one body. We talked about the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God, how he was promised to be poured out on all people, promised to be poured out on all people. The universality and commonality of that pouring, we talked about that. We talked about how the Spirit was promised by John the Baptist, by Christ, fulfilled at uh, Pentecost, I'm on page two here, and promised to everyone who trusts in Christ. I love this quote here, Acts 
2, 37 through 39. This is the end of the Pentecost sermon. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So that is the promise of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about the fellowship of the Spirit. Uh, I like this uh, doxology, 2 Corinthians uh, 13, 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit uh, be with you all. The fellowship of the Spirit. We talked about this word koinonia and how the, the Spirit is that which we hold in common with all Christians. Every Christian around the world has uh, the Holy Spirit. And so that is the basis of our marvelous, our wonderful, supernatural fellowship with one another. Uh, this is why Christian brothers and sisters who have never met each other can instantly feel a strong connection after just a few moments. We talked about the unity of the Spirit. Make every effort in Ephesians 4 to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And so we said that there is a fellowship, a unity, uh, intrinsically among believers in the body of Christ. We are cells in the body. We are just by being alive in Christ. But that doesn't mean we always get along with each other. And so therefore, there is an experience of unity that we have to make an effort to maintain. There's a, Just like uh, in a marriage, uh, the two shall become one flesh. But that doesn't mean they always get along. Amen? Amen? All right. So anyway, that's negative, right? I don't mean to be negative. Not at all. Of course, Christy and I, we always get along, don't we? But aside from all that. Okay. Yes, we are one flesh, whether we're acting like it or not. We are one, whether we are. But you have, there's a unity in the spirit that must be maintained. There's an effort you have to make. Ephesians 4 exhorts us to make that effort to maintain the unity of the spirit. It's an experience. I think this is very much like the difference between the fact that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and we can have the peace of God guarding our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, right? It says, do not be anxious about anything. Philippians 4, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is related to, but somewhat different from Romans 5, 1, which says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. One is a state of peace with God that cannot change. The other is an experience of peace that you have when you commit matters that could cause you anxiety, you commit them to God in prayer. And then God grants you a sense of his peace, a sense of the peace of God that, that uh, can cover you in a situation. So if you're a Christian for the rest of your life, you will have peace with God. Nothing can take that away. Isn't that marvelous? You'll never be at war with God again. Never. And that's a marvelous thing. But that doesn't mean you always are experiencing and sensing that peace. And so it is also with the fellowship of the Spirit. We are one but we don't always act like it. We are one, but we don't always experience that unity, that fellowship. We have to make an effort to maintain it. That's what it's getting at. It's the spirit that does it. Uh, Romans 15, 5 and 6 says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves. Again, that's that experience of unity, that sense of unity. We are one, etc. cetera. Uh, so that with one heart and mouth, you may glorify uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? 
page four, we've talked about uh, Christ has made the two one, the unity that he accomplished on the cross. So the unity of the spirit is a continuation of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The ultimate end of that in John 17 is that we may be one, uh, that, that we, the church of Christ, may be as one as the Father and the Son are one. Perfect fellowship. Uh, that is our future. We also talked about how the spiritual gifts promote unity. We are one body, but we have different functions and we all belong to each other. Again, I think the marriage analogy is helpful. I'm not going to be able to make this analogy the way I should on Sunday morning. Okay, but I've been preaching through Romans and we're talking about the spiritual gifts. I believe that my gifts don't belong to me alone, but they belong to the body of Christ. Your gifts don't belong to you alone, but they also belong to the body of Christ. It says each member belongs to all the others. And so I think the analogy of this is in 1 Corinthians 7 where you have the marital relationship physically and says the wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband. The husband's body does not belong to him alone but also to the wife. That promotes unity. So therefore, when we selfishly withhold our spiritual gifts, we're withholding from our brothers and sisters what really belongs to them. It really is theirs. Ultimately, it's God's, of course, but it really belongs to them. So if you have the gift of encouragement, you're not using it. You're really depriving your brothers and sisters of your gift. You need to use it. And so you see how the spiritual gifts then promotes unity. It brings us together so that we use our gifts with each other. We're drawn together and made one. It's a beautiful thing. Spiritual gifts promotes unity. And the spirit opposes all fleshly disunity. Galatians 5 strongly talks about that. The works of the flesh are obvious. We have all that discord and, and factions and dissensions and jealousy and all that. But the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness etc those things unify so the work of unity now this is where we were toward the end of the last time and this is really a marvelous ministry of the spirit the spirit is given at least in part to give us a sense of god's love for us a sense of his pleasure in us he he gives that sense to a greater or less degree based on his sovereign will he gives you a sense of assurance to a greater or less degree based on his sovereign will. He can give it to you. He can take you as high as he wants to take you in a sense or appreciation of his love for you. And that's up to the, to the spirit. Now, <clears throat> we talked about John 14:21. <clears throat> sorry. In John 14:21, it says that if you have Christ's commands and you obey them, uh, the Lord himself will disclose himself to you that through obedience to the commands of Christ, uh, the, you open yourself up more and more to Christ disclosing himself to you. You want to know more about Christ? You want to know more of, of him? You want him to disclose himself to you? Then be obedient to him. Obey the commands he's given you. And we talked about this a little bit last time. We talked about how the Holy Spirit bestows or withdraws blessing based on his pleasure. Uh, John one thirty two. Jesus had, was full of the Spirit. The Spirit came down from heaven as a dove and remained on him. Christ also received the Spirit without measure. And therefore, there are some people who in like manner, but not to the same degree, are consistently filled with and empowered by the Spirit of God. And so they are said to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, people uh, like in Acts 6, 3, they're looking for the so-called deacons there in Acts 6. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. And uh, so they did. Stephen met this requirement, Acts 6, 5. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. 
So it's possible for a person to be consistently uh, empowered by and filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Barnabas as well uh, is described in this way. <clears throat> Acts 11:24. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Therefore, it is possible to be consistently filled, empowered, and controlled by the Holy Spirit of God as an abiding trait of life. For these people, there is an ongoing sense of the presence of the Lord, and that is ministered to them and through them by the will and pleasure of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, this is where we were last time. What is it that causes us to stop being filled with the Spirit? Well, it is sin, nothing less than sin. And one of the most important things, I mean, whether it's marital counseling or anything else, let's talk about marital counseling. One of the most important things I want to share with a husband or a wife is that there's absolutely nothing that your spouse can do to get you out of the Spirit. Now, you may beg to differ, okay? You may say, I have it absolutely and proof positive that they are fully able to get me out of the Spirit. As a matter of fact, they've done it many, many times. No, they haven't. You have in every case. You understand what I'm saying? Other people's sin do not affect your spiritual situation. Other people's sin cannot get you out of the Spirit. But you can, can't you? And perhaps you've done it before (laughs) under provocation, under temptation. You give up that sense of abiding presence in the Holy Spirit. But isn't it wonderful to know you don't need to? Isn't it wonderful to know that you can be filled with the Spirit no matter what is going on outside of you? No matter what's going on outside of your body, even if somebody's having a total meltdown near you, okay? It doesn't have to drag you down. As a matter of fact, if you maintain your status of being filled with the Spirit, you will more likely help them through that situation and get them out rather than melting down with them. And so that's a beautiful thing to know. All right, we talked about about this briefly, but I'd like to go into a little more detail. We talked about grieving the Holy Spirit of God. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, Ephesians 4.30, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. We talked about this last time. Verse 29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. You want to know something? The number one way that I lose the abiding presence of the Spirit is through my mouth. He just kind of leaks out through my mouth, put it that way, all right? I say things I shouldn't say. I say critical things, or I say boastful things, or I say unbelieving things, or things that ought just not ought to be said. And then as a result, you get right into the next verse, verse 30. I'm grieving the Spirit of God by the things that I say. And therefore, doesn't James say that you should bridle your tongue or guard your tongue? And the one who is able to control his tongue is a perfect man, able to keep the whole body in check? You know, it is really tough to control the tongue. But that's what uh, Paul talks about here in Ephesians 4. Grieving the Spirit is connected to the tongue. But it's connected to other things as well. Bitterness can grieve the Spirit. Rage and anger, all of these things can grieve the Spirit. And so instead, we should be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Then there's this matter of quenching the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit of God. We talked about this briefly. Um, The quenching of the Spirit is, uh, the grieving of the Spirit is when you do something the Spirit doesn't want you to do. When you're sinning in some way, the Spirit does not want you to do. And so you are uh, you are acting out or moving or feeling or reacting in a certain way that is not honoring. Quenching of the Spirit is more when He wants you to move in a certain direction and wants you to go in a certain direction and you don't go there. You pour a bucket of water and what the Spirit's wanting to do through you. You know, 
uh, remember how the Spirit of God came down and descended as tongues of fire uh, in Acts chapter 2. And so the fire represents the Spirit. Quenching the Spirit is you're taking a bucket of water and pouring it on the Spirit. And so you're quenching the Spirit. Then there are matters of sins against the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20. It says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Sexual sin and temptation, giving in to our sex-crazed culture in the mind or in actions or in any way at all, uh, is a sin against the Holy Spirit of God. And so we are uh, temple of the Spirit. And so if we sin uh, through sexual impurity, we are sinning against the Spirit of God. And then there's the ultimate sin against the Spirit, what we call apostasy, turning away from the gospel. In Hebrews 10, it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after we've received a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? And look what it says here, has outraged the Spirit of grace. And that's a very, uh, this is a different translation than I usually use here, but that's a good translation of the Greek. That turning away from Christ, a willful turning away from the gospel, is outraging to the Spirit, outraging the Spirit of grace. Now, there is the question, can any true Christian do this? Is the author of Hebrews speaking actually or just potentially as a warning? And that's a very, a very important question. Um, I believe that the warnings in the book of Hebrews are given so that we will not apostatize. And I think the ones who take them seriously are the true Christians. So we need these kinds of warnings. We need to know this kind of stuff. It's the guardrail that keeps us from going off the edge. And without that, uh, without the work of the Spirit in giving us this warning, we might go over the edge. But because of that, we heed the warnings and we stay on the, on the path that the Lord has laid out for us. But in, at any rate, I just want you to notice the terminology, outrage the Spirit of grace. Um, and then finally, there's this matter of blasphemy against the Spirit. Therefore, I tell you, Matthew 12, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, what does this mean, blasphemy against the Spirit? What does that mean? Have you ever heard it? Yes, you've heard of it, but you're shaking your head saying, I don't know what it means. Please tell me. Yes, what does it mean? Okay. What were the works of Christ that they were not believing? That's right. Uh, remember, Jesus said, um, at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. He says that. So the, the miracles were evidence that he was the son of God. He says in John chapter 5, 
um, the very work the Father has given me to do testifies concerning me. So the miracles he did. I mean, John chapter 9, a very good example, the man born blind. Remember that? And uh, he, to him, you know, they're saying, we don't know where he's, where he's come from. They're saying that. We don't know where this, when the Messiah comes, we'll know where he's from. But as for this man, we don't know where it's from. And the blind man says something really amazing. He says, now herein is the miracle or herein is the astonishing thing that you don't know where he's from. No one since the beginning of the world has ever heard of anyone opening the eyes of a man born blind. And you don't know where he's from? Isn't it obvious where he's from? He must be from God. But here were Jesus' enemies taking his miracles and saying, it is by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he drives out demons. The, the greatest evidence of his, his uh, deity, of his supernatural power, and they come up with exactly the wrong conclusion that he is from the devil. And that is blasphemy against the spirit. Uh, and he's saying, you can't just say these things. Blasphemy is something you say. You can't just say this. Because I tell you the truth, you will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word you have spoken. And so he says, blasphemy against the spirit. Is it possible to, co- to commit this sin now? Is it possible for people to blaspheme against the spirit of God now? Some of you say yes. I'm saying I don't know. If it's directly tied to the miracles that the Son of God does while he's in the body on earth, then we'd have to say no. You'd have to say no. Some people who believe in a millennial reign, thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, look very technically and carefully at Jesus' statement. He says, you will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Both of those times are times in which Jesus is physically on earth showing his power. That's the way they interpret that. You're saying, is that the way you interpret it? I don't know. We're not talking about the millennium tonight. But at any rate, they do say that it has to do with Jesus doing physical miracles on earth, and that's what the blasphemy of the Spirit is. At any rate, the sum total of all that we've looked at here of grieving the Spirit and quenching the Spirit and sins against the Spirit sexually because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and then apostasy, which is outraging the Spirit, All of these things, if you put it all together, blasphemy against the Spirit, all of these passages indicate that we must be very careful not to grieve or offend the Holy Spirit. He will not force himself on us against our wills. Um, He says in 1 Corinthians 14, 32, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. But if we resist and quench and oppose him, then his empowering uh, will depart and he will remove much of the blessing of God from our lives. So we need to be very, very careful how we deal with uh, the Holy Spirit of God. All right? Well, then, wouldn't it be better to please the Spirit than all of these negative things? This is a negative study. Let's talk about pleasing the Spirit. Yes? I have a question about uh, Matthew 12. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't, it, doesn't it seem as though it's contrasting um, blaspheming the Son versus blaspheming the Spirit? So it's not the same thing if, if Christ performs a miracle. And in this case, I wonder if it's because they do blaspheme Christ and he says that will be forgiven, but if you blaspheme the Spirit, that will not be forgiven. Is that like a, a right. special elevation of the person of the Spirit? Or would you say that, it sounds like what you're saying is that it's blaspheme of any of the persons. Of well, I think it's, I, I really believe, um, like we were just saying a moment ago, it's connected to the miracles. If you look at various, there are various scripture verses, uh, like in Acts, how the Spirit, of, he was anointed with the Spirit and went around doing signs and wonders. There's a connection between the Spirit of God and the miracles he did. 
That's why I think he is talking about blasphemy against the spirit and not against himself because it's the spirit's power and he has come to elevate Christ in their eyes to exalt Christ so that we will think great thoughts of Christ, that he is not a mere man, that after he stills the the storm, right? They ask the question, what kind of man is this who can still a storm with words? Well, it's by the spirit of God he does that miracle. And so it's the Spirit's ministry to work the deity of Christ into our hearts. And and when you are looking directly at a miracle that was designed for that, um, uh, and you conclude that he is from the devil, that I, in, within context, I'm thinking that's what the blasphemy is. But I think that, that we can blaspheme Jesus now, and it happens all the time. I was witnessing to some uh, international folks, and somebody from a country in which, in which uh, basically atheism is taught all along, and the person didn't know anything about Jesus Christ except that he was a swear word that said frequently by Americans. I thought, oh boy, we have to work on that, <laughs> okay? Yes, some Americans say that name, our, our Savior's name, in that way. So I think the blasphemy against the Son of God is going on. And see how gracious Jesus is about it. What does he say about blasphemy against the Son? Anyone who speaks a word against the Son will be forgiven. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, you can say anything you want against Jesus. As a matter of fact, many Christians, before they became Christians, did say very negative and hard things about Jesus. But then he forgives it all. It's amazing. That's the best I can do with that in, in Matthew 12. It's not an easy passage. Were you going to say something, brother? Yeah. I was just going to say, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, there's really nothing left. You know, once God is manifested in the world, the Holy Spirit, proof to Yeah, nothing. That's my whole point. I think you have seen everything God will do to you to show you that Jesus is God and you conclude he's from the devil. There's nothing left to show you. You've seen it all. And look what, look what you've concluded. There's, not, there's no forgiveness then possible for you. That's what, that's what we get out. It's The unforgivable sin is a difficult passage. Everybody knows that. This is my best uh, uh, attempt at it. Um, let's look at pleasing the Spirit and let's talk about uh, the baptism of the Spirit. On the other hand, Grudem says, the life, in the life of Christians whose conduct is pleasing to God, the Holy Spirit will be present to bring great bless, blessings. Now, let's talk about the matter of the baptism of the Spirit. Now, my opinion is that the baptism of the Spirit is done to every true Christian at the moment of their conversion. That's what I believe. Others disagree, like Martin Lloyd-Jones disagrees. Okay, It's a fearful thing to disagree with Martin Lloyd-Jones. But I'm going to do it um, because... You know, he disagrees with other great men of God on other points, and that's fine. We just, you know, one of the things I've noticed in church history, there's no one figure in church history whose doctrine I 100% agree with. So I'm very grateful that they have been corrected now, now that they've reached heaven, and I look forward to... to, That was a joke, okay? I hope you understand that, all right? All of our doctrines are to some degree messed up, and we will find out in heaven in what way they were messed up. But... um, you know, he, he disagrees, and we'll talk about Lloyd-Jones in a minute. But I think the baptism of the Spirit is done uh, to every Christian at the moment of conversion. Uh, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry, Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, here's my question. Doesn't that seem universal? Doesn't it seem like something that Jesus is going to do to everybody? Some people argue that the baptism of the Spirit is an experience that just a select group of people receives. At certain times, I don't think so. I think my my take on baptism of the spirit and fire is that you're going to get one or the other from Jesus. Baptism means a total immersion in something. 
like to dip something in, like a garment dipped in a vat of, of dye, totally immersed. That's what baptizo means. All right, so you are going to be immersed in the Holy Spirit or you're going to be immersed in fire by Jesus. If you read the context of what John the Baptist says, it says he will clear his threshing floor, Jesus will, gathering up the wheat into the barn, but burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So fire is twice in the passage and the second time it's judgment, it's wrath. So therefore I think when it says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, what he's getting at there is you're going to get either one or the other. Either you're going to get saved, which means a baptism with the Spirit, or you're going to get you're going to go to hell, which is a baptism with uh, with fire. That's my take on it. All right. Uh, also in uh, Romans six three through five it says, "Don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with Him like this in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection." I believe that this is talking about what happens the instant somebody is justified, the instant they trust in Christ, they are immediately, mystically, spiritually united with Christ. And so Paul can say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the moment you become a Christian, you become mystically, spiritually united with Christ. Now, Paul uses baptism language for it. Do you see it in, here in Romans 6, 3 through, 3 through 5? I don't believe this is talking about water baptism directly. I think it's indirectly talking about it. I actually think water baptism is a outward and visible picture of an inward spirit baptism that's already occurred. In other words, we are already baptized into Christ totally immersed in Christ by the Spirit. And uh, therefore, we then get water baptism to show the world that, that which has already happened to us. That's, that's my take on baptism. So therefore, I don't believe that Romans 6 is talking about water baptism directly. I think that water baptism symbolizes the baptism that Paul is discussing because it's just too important here. It's too spiritual for it just to be water baptism. Okay? All of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into his death. There's a union here between us and Christ. It happens at the moment of moment of justification. And for me, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is the most important proof text on this idea that every single Christian is baptized with the Spirit at the moment of conversion. It says, For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given one Spirit to drink. In other words, everybody that's a Christian is baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. Now, I don't, we're not like the Church of Christ or other uh, groups that say you must be water baptized in order to go to heaven. I don't, I don't think Paul put water baptism at that high level. He says, I can't even remember who I baptized. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, right? Well, if baptism has to be part of your experience in order to go to heaven, uh, then why would he say the Lord didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel? He's not talking here about water baptism. We were baptized by the Spirit into one body. Yes. Yeah, praise God for the thief on the cross. Uh, he gives so many people hope. He has had such a great ministry, hasn't he? Like it says in, in Hebrews 11, though being dead, he still speaks, right? I mean, he died that day. But how much encouragement has come from contemplating that? How many people have gone to hospitals 
with an unsaved relative who's on their deathbed and still have hope in their hearts because of the thief on the cross. And so praise God for that, all the fruit that has flowed from his life. <laughs> and, and you look at it and you say, well, what did he really do? Well, he had faith. And if you don't think he did, what kind of faith does it take to look over at a bleeding, dying man and say, remember me, Lord, when you come in your kingdom? Only God can give that kind of faith. And Jesus, I mean, God the Father gave that thief that faith on the cross. He didn't give it to the other one, just to that one. And he was justified by faith alone. What a picture of justification by faith alone apart from works of the law. He did nothing. He couldn't. He's nailed to a cross. So praise God for that. How do we get into him? But anyway... um, All right. No, it's good. It's good. Um, Controversy about this. The book of Acts gives puzzling and seemingly inconsistent picture of the baptism and the spirit and all that. Let me tell you something. Everybody has trouble with the book of Acts. It doesn't matter what you believe about it. Every other case, every case is different from the other. Sometimes people believe and then the spirit comes. Other times the spirit comes and then they they say they believe. The, The thing just seems all over the place. Because the experiences in the book of Acts are not necessarily normative forever for the rest of the... Obviously, it's an unusual time. Like, for example, when Philip goes to Samaria and preaches the gospel and they receive and they believe and all that, but it's not till the apostles come and lay their hands on them that the Spirit comes in an obvious way. Clearly, I don't think that was meant to be a pattern for all time. Um, We already uh, quoted uh, Acts 2.38. You will receive the gift of the Spirit. Then look at Acts 8.15-17, top of page 8. It says, when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. That's water baptism there in verse 16. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. There it seems like repentance and faith were followed by water baptism, which was then followed by the gift of the Spirit. That's a little bit troubling, isn't it? That's not the order that I'm giving you. I believe that spirit baptism happens first and then water baptism, all right? But then here in Acts 10, 44 through 48, uh, this is Cornelius' house. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized into the name, in the name of Jesus Christ. What's the order there? It's the opposite. Do you see it? There, Peter is preaching the gospel. While he's preaching, they're not doing anything. They're just listening. And then suddenly, whoosh, the Spirit comes. That is faith. The faith has been kindled in their hearts. God the Father sees it and pours out the Spirit on them and the surrounding believers recognize it because of the gift of tongues, which was operating at that point in a very open way. And so the gift of the Spirit comes and they speak in tongues. Then comes water baptism, right? After that comes water baptism. In my opinion, that's the normative order. That's what I think usually happens. I'm not talking now tonight about the gift of tongues. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying hearing with faith, Gift of the Spirit, water baptism. That's the ordinary order, okay? Now, the Pentecostals say that speaking in tongues is a sure and certain sign of the giving of the Spirit. It's a sure and certain sign of baptism with the Spirit. The UPC, the United Pentecostal Church, which edges into heresy because they deny the Trinity. They are modalists who believe there is just one God 
who has revealed himself sometimes as father, sometimes as son, and sometimes as spirit, which is a very big problem as to who it is that Jesus was praying to when he prayed and who it is that answered him back. That's even more troubling. You know, that's very difficult for me. I just believe in the doctrine of the Trinity and that the son was speaking to the father and the father answered and they had a conversation. But one of the things the UPC, uh, the Pentecostal, United Pentecostal Church, and by the way, United Pentecostal Church does not represent all Pentecostals. There are different kinds of Pentecostals. Some of them do not have that heretical view of the Trinity. Some of them are just, they just believe in the sign gifts like speaking in tongues. But what they say is you have not received the baptism of the spirit if you do not speak in tongues. Everyone must speak in tongues to prove the baptism of the Spirit. And some of them, more hardliners, will say, we agree with what you said earlier this evening, namely that it comes when you're truly justified. So if you're truly justified, you will receive the baptism of the Spirit. And if you have truly received the baptism of the Spirit, you will speak in tongues. So what does that mean? If you haven't spoken in tongues, what does it say about you? You're not saved. Well, that's discouraging, you know. Uh, also, that's not biblical because Paul asks a rhetorical question, expecting the answer no in 1 Corinthians, saying, do all speak in tongues? Implying no. Do all prophesy? Do all speak in tongues? Do all have the gift of whatever? No. The, the Spirit gives those gifts to different ones as he apportions it. Some speak in tongues, but many do not. Yeah, go ahead. prayer language something like that yes yeah. yeah, i mean it's very controversial you know i to me i think i i think the greek word glossi uh does mean tongue the, see the whole thing the word tongues is a kjv word um and and it got kind of locked in place and then brought across into other more modern translations but uh, uh an analysis of the word glossi etc tongues would be languages. That's the way, that's that's what it means. It, the problem is that so often these concepts get kind of set, and so later English translators just use that same word tongues, even though we don't use the the word that way very much anymore. Nowadays, when I tell it, when I say to you speaking in tongues, you're going to think in a Pentecostal sense, perhaps of a prayer language or something like that. But I'm just saying, back in the 17th century, if you would have heard the word tongues, you would think languages. That's what the word meant, and that's that's what the Greek word meant as well. Okay, good point. Now let's get to our brother, Martin Lloyd-Jones. One of the greatest books I have ever read is um, Joy Unspeakable and Full of Glory. And the basic premise of the book, Joy Unspeakable, is that God gives the baptism of the Spirit periodically from time to time to empower and motivate the church for evangelism. That these kinds of experiences have happened again and again and again in church history is incontrovertible. They have happened. And I'm going to read about some of those, um, you know, in a a minute. Uh, They do happen. That we should call them the baptism of the Spirit, I disagree. That's where where I part company. It just has to do with this terminology. I think it's a open and obvious filling of the Spirit. That's the terminology I would use. The reason I shy away from calling it baptism of the Spirit is because this word baptism is used in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 to say we're all baptized by one Spirit into one body. And so therefore, if you haven't had one of these incredible moments that Lloyd-Jones writes about in Joy Unspeakable, um, then you haven't been baptized in the body, something like that. I'm just saying that the Spirit gives those kinds of things, what we tend to call as Southern Baptists, revival, right? We tend to call it revival. If he hasn't given that to you, you haven't been baptized with the Spirit. 
And that's a problem. Look what Lloyd-Jones says here. The key idea is the baptism of the Spirit is a revival. It's a special experience of the presence of God by the power of the Spirit given to his people for the purpose of personal holiness and evangelistic power. That's why he gives it. By the way, how do most Southern Baptist churches use the word revival? A meeting, okay. Once a year, scheduled ahead of time, right? Come to such and such to the revival that will be such and such a date. You know, our revival will be from seven to nine tonight. And tomorrow, you know, I'm saying, how do they know? I mean, has the, I mean, the Spirit can tell ahead of time. We believe that through the prophetic gift, but I don't think that's what they mean. It means they have scheduled an event with a speaker and there's going to be certain kind of music and all that. Friends, all of that came from the Second Great Awakening with Charles Finney in which he said the Lord will give a revival every time, anytime, as long as you meet his criteria. And if there is not a revival, it's your fault. I'm, I'm just summarizing, but basically it's like the ceiling is filled with water. And if you just know how to poke through, then the rains are going to come down. And if you don't poke through, it isn't. It's an analogy. All right, don't worry about it. That is a drop ceiling. Everything is fine. But I'm just using an analogy. If you don't poke through, it's your fault. The water will come down if you do the right things. The showers will come down if you repent of all known sin, if you spend X amount of time praying, if you you know do your PR and your advertising and you do the various things, the new measures that Finney lays out, the revival will come, definitely. There are huge problems with this. Do you not see it? it? It means that he's like a machine. He's like a vending machine. If you put in three quarters, a dime and a nickel, you'll get out the revival. It doesn't work that way. The Spirit gives revival as he chooses. You can do all the right things and he's not choosing to give it. Lloyd-Jones would agree with that totally. It's an act of sovereign grace. He gives it when he chooses. Okay? But look what Lloyd-Jones says here. The key idea is that not every Christian is baptized with the Spirit. And therein we'd part company. We disagree. I think every Christian is or you're not a Christian. That's what I would say. Here's the first principle. I'm asserting that you can be a believer, that you can have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and still not be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that is done by the Lord Jesus Christ, not by the Holy Spirit. Our being baptized into the body of Christ is the work of the Spirit. That's the point of 1 Corinthians 12, 13. As regeneration is his work. But this is something entirely different. This is Christ's baptizing us with the Holy Spirit. And I'm suggesting that this is something which is therefore obviously distinct from and separate from becoming a Christian, being regenerate, having the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Join Speakable. Those people that say who say that baptism with the Holy Spirit happens to everybody at regeneration seem to me not only to be denying the New Testament, but to be definitely quenching the Spirit. So it happened here tonight, if he's right. I quenched the Spirit tonight because I taught that all Christians are baptized with the Spirit. Now, when you look into the evidence that he gives uh, biblically uh, and in, in church history, I would say readily that not everyone experiences these kinds of, these kinds of incredible uh, times. Let me read uh, some accounts that Lloyd-Jones gives of the baptism of the Spirit. He says it can happen to individuals. He says it can happen to groups. All right? Um, I, I use these in a sermon that I uh, preached a number of years ago from Romans chapter 5 talking about the love of God poured out by the Spirit into our hearts. I also preach this at Southeastern Seminary. Uh, so you probably have heard some of these before. But uh, they're really quite thrilling. And I believe these experiences really do happen. And I think we should seek them. I just don't call them the baptism of the Spirit, that's all. 
Blaise Pascal, for example, 17th century French philosopher and mathematician, when he died, they found sewed inside of his shirt a piece of paper. Now, evidence was that this thing had been sewn and re-sewn in series of pieces of paper. So apparently it was an old or a series of shirts. It was an old piece of paper that was precious to him. And so he, from time to time, would, would unsew it and then re-sew it in a new shirt. Wow. What did it say? Well, it was written in French, but this is what it said. This day of grace, 1654, from about half past 10 at night to about half past midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and the wise. Security, security, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, thy God shall be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of all except God. He can be found only in ways taught in the gospel. Greatness of the whole human soul. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. Joy, 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 tears of joy. I have separated myself from him. My God, why hast thou forsaken me, that I be not separated from thee eternally? This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and him whom thou hast sent. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. I have separated myself from him. I have fled, renounced, crucified him. May I never be separated from him. He maintains himself in me in ways only taught in the gospel. Renunciation, total and sweet. It's just a series of phrases, almost incoherent babbling. Clearly, he wrote it at the time while it was going on. My question is, what happened to Blaise Pascal, 1654, from half past 10 to half past midnight? What did he mean by fire? What was going on with him? Well, Lloyd-Jones would say that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I would just say it was the pouring out of the Spirit, a filling of the Spirit in a marvelous way, testifying by the Spirit of God's love for Blaise Pascal. Here's an account from Jonathan Edwards. As I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been, to walk for divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that was for me extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thoughts and conceptions, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour. Such as to keep me a greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping out loud. I felt an ardency of the soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated, to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve him and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a heavenly purity. Get the picture. He's literally lying on the ground for an hour. This is Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest brains in the history of the church. An analytical man. He went out, as was his custom, for a walk with God and just starts praying. And all of a sudden, basically, God knocks him to the ground. For an hour, he is weeping. And then there's the account of D.L. Moody. He said, I began, began to cry as never before for a greater blessing from God. The hunger increased. I really felt that I did not want to live any longer. I kept on crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. 
Well, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke for 14 years. I can only say that God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Well, what is happening to these men? What, what, is, what are they talking about? Well, I think it's a pouring out of the Holy Spirit of God. I think it's a sealing with the Spirit in which we are sealed with uh, a sense of the presence of God, a foretaste or a down payment, a deposit guaranteeing the full inheritance. The full inheritance is this to the infinite degree, right? You're in the presence of God Almighty, seeing him face to face. Do you think you will not be feeling an ardency of soul toward God when you're in heaven? Like a fire within you? Will you not glow with the glory of God from within you? And my feeling is, why not experience some of that now? And to me, the key verses for this, you know, it says, and I think it's in Luke 12, Jesus says, uh, which of you fathers, if a son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's in Luke. Matthew says, give good gifts to those who ask him. He gives good gifts. He also gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask. You say, well, I already have the Holy Spirit. Clearly, Jesus means something more. John chapter 7, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and called out in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Then John tells us, by this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. You just have to ask yourself, is that my experience? Streams of living water flowing from within me. More like tri trickles, you might say. <laughs> Little drops here and there. Well, what does Jesus say? And then Luke, doesn't he say, then ask him for it. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Take a minute and look at Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. This is what I call seeking the filling of the Spirit. We should seek the filling of the Spirit. We should seek the love of God poured out into the heart by the Holy Spirit. We should seek a sense of His presence. I think this is precisely what Paul prays for. In Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, it says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. What does that mean? For this reason I kneel before the Father. What's he talking about here? He's talking about what? His prayer life, right? He's talking about his prayer life. This is why I pray. That's what he's saying. This is what I'm praying for. I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What's he praying there? A supernatural power by which Christ will manifest, I think, his indwelling presence in your life. That's what he's praying for. Who is he praying this for, by the way? 
the Ephesian Christians, right? He's praying for them that they might have power in the inner man so that Christ might dwell in their hearts through faith. And that, that you, he says, being rooted and established in love may have power. There's that word power again. Together with all the saints. So we're included too. Together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And that you might know that love that surpasses knowledge. What does that mean? To know what surpasses knowledge. It's a sense of the infinitude of God's love for you. Basically, he's saying, I pray that you know that Christ loves you. I pray you would know and sense the love of Christ in you and that you'd have a sense of the magnitude of that love and the scope of it and how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and that you would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, right? There's a sense of a filling, the filling to the measure of the fullness of God. What is Paul praying for? That's quite a prayer, isn't it? I'm kneeling for you and praying for you that you might have an incredible expansion within your soul of how much God loves you. And then he goes on from there. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. I think you ought to refer that back to what he was just praying for. He can actually give you an immeasurably greater sense of his love for you than you have ever imagined even was possible. Now you say, this is really quite excessive language here. (laughs) Well, isn't D.L. Moody's language excessive? Wasn't Jonathan Edwards' language excessive? How about Blaise Pascal? He can't even really put it into words. It just transcends words. Wasn't Paul's experience in 2 Corinthians 12 excessive? When he said, I know a man in Christ, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to the third heaven, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to talk about. What's he, what's he referring to? Well, it's this sacred experience of being lifted up from within himself. He doesn't even know if he's still in the body. It didn't matter. <laughs> body, what body? All right. I'm in the presence of God, a sense of the presence of God a sense of our future inheritance. Isn't that what the Spirit has come to give us? A down payment, a little foretaste of what we have? Now, you might say this kind of excessive language does not line up with my experience. Well, what does the Scripture tell you to do about it? To pray. Pray for what? Pray for faith. Pray for more. Give me more, Lord. Give me more. Do you sense in Blaise Pascal's little statement where he feels like he's starting to lose it a bit? He's like, oh, I've renounced him. Don't go away. You know, it's just a foretaste, a foretaste. He doesn't have lots of pieces of paper sewn in his shirt. He's just got one. D.L. Moody had an experience, he said. One time. Jonathan Edwards, one time this happened. You say, well, if it's only going to happen one time, why should we seek it? Well, answer the question. Why should you ardently, earnestly seek a sense of God's great love for you? Why should you do that? Is that good? Okay. Do you think he might give you something less than this kind of thing, but still worth searching for? Couldn't he pour out in your spirit at least some foretaste even of this kind of experience where you just get up and you feel filled with peace, filled with the fruit of the spirit, a sense of happiness in your heart, a sense of joy and love and a readiness to do anything he's called on you to do? Isn't that worth it? Isn't that the filling of the spirit? I think it is. And if, you know, 
the baptism of the Spirit is what we ought to call it. Listen, I'll stand corrected, but I don't think that's the point. The point is we all have the indwelling Spirit and there are these experiences that not everyone has and that we ought to seek them and search them and ask for them. Now, is there any danger in, in doing that? In ardently seeking this kind of spiritual experience with God? Is there any danger? Yeah. Okay. All right. That's right. Hindus seek spiritual experiences, out-of-body experiences through meditation and all that kind of thing. We're not seeking an experience, are we? What is it that we're seeking? We're seeking God. I really should, if I had said it correctly, you'd know what I was meaning. Who is it we're seeking, right? We are seeking God. It, it says that he, he earnestly rewards those who diligently seek him. We're not seeking an it. We're seeking a him. We're seeking Christ. We're seeking a sense of him. And I think if that's what you're doing, you can't lose. Even if the Lord doesn't choose to pour out on you some supernatural experience that, that will be written about in a church history book 100 years later if the Lord tarries. That doesn't really matter. That's what the Lord chooses to do or not. But I tell you this, if you got into a regular habit of doing this, searching, searching, searching for Christ, yearning for him, hungering and thirsting for him, how can it not lift you up to a new level in your Christian life? How could it not give you a sense of his love? How could you not have a greater sense of power for evangelism? So we are called on, in my opinion, to be filled with the Spirit. We are called on to be uh, seeking after this. Look at the top of page 9. It says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Do you see what's so interesting? If you had caught Blaise Pascal at, let's say, he said, what, half past 10 to half past midnight? Let's say you came into him at around 11 o'clock that night. Okay, what do you think you'd have thought as you were watching that go on? <laughs> that he's drunk or something. He's on a drug. He's just, I mean, what about, here's Jonathan Edwards, this dignified guy, in my perception, laying in the dust with tears flowing down his face. You say, get up. What's up? What happened to you? All right, D.L. Moody. He's overwhelmed by the sense of the presence of God. Now do you see? Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. There's a kind of a connection there. Not those spirits, all right, but the Spirit, the Spirit of God. Now, is there a command here? What's the command? Be filled with the Spirit. Remember, I noted to you last time, this is a very interesting command. It is, a, it is passive, a passive imperative. Be something. Go be something. All right. How do you how do you go have something done to you? <laughs> I mean, that's a strange thing, isn't it? It's just like you must be born again. It's the exact same concept. It's the idea of something that has to happen to you. Well, how then is it a command to us? What I believe is be constantly open and available to the filling of the spirit. He fills. We make ourselves available. Yes, go ahead. In other words, be yielded to the spirit. Be expecting, be like an open jar with a wide open mouth and just say, open wide my mouth and fill me. That's what he's saying here. Be filled with the Spirit. And what's the result of being filled with the Spirit? Well, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Uh, evangelistic boldness, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. All right, what else? The ing words, page 10. 
Do not get drunk on, on, with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing or speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks, and submitting to one another. Those are all just things that flow out of being filled with the Spirit and many others besides. Lots of things come from it. Worship and singing and happiness. Hey, what's wrong with happiness? All right, why not be happy in the Lord? Do you think dour, sour, negative people lead lots of folks to Christ? I tell you no, okay? So therefore, we ought to be filled with the happiness and the joy that comes in the Spirit, right? Why would they want what you have if what you have doesn't make you happy? If what you have makes you that miserable, they'll say, no, thank you, all right? But if what you have makes you delighted, then they'll want it. There's a yearning there. And so we should be ministering in the Spirit. Friends, we are plumb out of time. The rest of the things you can read. Well, this has been an incredible study. Um, you know, I have learned a lot by, by studying, not just this one section, but can I urge you, just by way of application, seek the filling of the Spirit. Seek it. Seek Him. Seek Christ. Go over Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Take it phrase by phrase and pray it into yourself. Pray it for yourself. And pray it for a brother or sister in Christ. Pray it for somebody else. Paul's praying it for the Ephesian Christians. You can pray that for someone else. I think that will be powerful. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the study we've had tonight. We thank you for how you have worked to teach us. Lord, I thank you for all that we've learned from our brother Wayne Grudem. And Lord, as we venture forth next week to learn more about evangelism, personal evangelism and witnessing, God, I pray that you would be helping us to be evangelistically fruitful. I pray that we would seek you with all of our hearts so that we are able to draw others into personal faith in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.